I've entitled my message, The King's Summons. The King's Summons. You know, this book that we are looking at, this gospel letter that we are looking at, it has been pointed out to us that this gospel letter is all about Jesus Christ. The gospel of Mark is all about Jesus Christ. And we learned as we opened up and started the study in Mark that this letter is also rooted in the Old. It's rooted in the Old Testament. It's a fulfillment of what has been promised, what has been uh, told, foretold. This gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. And this gospel is good news for all. This gospel is good news for every single person. One of the things that really provoked me when we moved on from our introduction to Mark is when we looked at the baptism of Jesus. And one of the things that Dave prompted us to, which quite provoked me, to be honest, was that we need to be quick while we're going through this book to find the bridegroom in Mark's gospel. Instead of looking at how this affects me, looking at where is the bridegroom? What is the bridegroom doing What's being revealed? Dave went on to also encourage us to be quick to see the King of Kings and Lord of of Lords in this gospel letter and to be quick to fall in love with him either for the first time or again. And last week, did not Brendan serve us well? I have been thinking over and over about how he fed us and nourished us from God's word. And what stuck out to me the most was that he was tempted for us that we might have hope amongst our failings, particularly because of this. And this is what is so vitally important about Mark's gospel. And that is this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords has done what you and I cannot do. And last week, Brendan helped us understand that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords went toe-to-toe with God's arch enemy, and he resisted him. He did something that we cannot do. But not only did he resist him, he then gives us his righteousness, again, scandalous, and then not only that, but he's able to identify with our weaknesses. Is anybody else here weak? Does anybody else here feel just absolutely weak to be a follower of Christ? You kind of feel defeated? Kind of feel like, ah, keep failing? And yet our Savior knows our weaknesses? Absolutely scandalous. What an exciting letter that we're going through and working through so that we can see what the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has done for us. Folks, we have a Savior who gives us his righteousness and who identifies with our weaknesses. Glory to his name. This morning, I want to continue in these next seven verses that we're going to be looking at in Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 14 to 20. And I want to read those verses to us now. And then after I read those verses, I want us to pray that God would speak to us and that our hearts would be positioned and ready to hear from this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords. So Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. 
Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left to their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Would you pray with me? King of kings and Lord of lords, we come wanting to hear from you. We come wanting to learn. Heavenly Father, I pray particularly for the men in this church. The men in this church who are seeking to learn more about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Father, that they may be able to equip their wives, that they may be able to equip their children. I ask this morning that you, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, would address them. Father, I pray for the women, and Lord, in particular, I believe that there's a few women in this church who have been praying for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to answer their prayers, and they're wondering, are you there? And I pray this morning, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that as we look at you and your summons, that, you would, that they would have clarity knowing that you are present, that you are with them, and that you are at work. Oh, Father, we are so dependent on you. And I, Lord, uh, I need your help this morning. I want to serve your people well. And I want to pull back, Lord, the curtains so that behind the curtains they would see what an incredible Savior you are, how worthy you are to have our life, to have our all. So, God, would you be glorified this morning? Would we walk away from here knowing we have an incredible King of kings and Lord of lords? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church, if you're taking notes this morning, the name of Mother, I called my sermon The King's Summons. And the way that I want to look at this, these seven verses is I want to look at the King's start, I want to look at the King's style, and I want us to look at the King's significance. This King has summonsed, and he has has started his summons uniquely. His style is unique and his significance is amazing. You know, kings are a unique species. Kings are, according to the dictionary, rulers who normally inherit the position by birth. Queens are female rulers who normally inherit their position by birth, i.e. Queen Elizabeth. Now, I have a confession, and I don't want you to hold this against me, but I know you're Australian, so you'll throw it in my face. But anyway, I'm personally a royal junkie. I am fascinated by the royals. In fact, I had the privilege of going to Buckingham Palace with Mark and Bianca and with Paso, um, but I was only able to peer through the iron gates with the other commoners. I guess she didn't get the notice that I was in town, but uh, I was left outside peering through the iron gates. But royals have much pomp and ceremony around their privileged lives. Um, They have the homes, 
They have the various castles. They have the many cars. Uh, they have servants and staff and holidays. And I mean, they have a very, very privileged life. But what we see here in Mark's gospel is a king that doesn't necessarily do things the way that we see the royals doing things. This king's start to his, uh, his ministry is very different than what Queen Elizabeth, how she started her rule and her reign. This king's start is provoking. This king's start is truly worthy of our slow and thoughtful consideration. So look again at the start of Jesus' reign and rule in verse 14. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now I think when you're reading scripture, last week we finished with Jesus being in the wilderness. Now when you read a letter, this letter would have been read all in one go. We're breaking it up so that we can, we can feed from it and we can consider it and we can think through it. But here, if you go back to verse 12, and immediately uh, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the an- uh, angels were ministering him. Now, after John was arrested. Why is that there? Why is Mark including that part into his letter? I think it's significant. And I think it's helpful for us as we're reading Mark's gospel to understand the significance of why John's arrest is here. Because Mark doesn't go on to explain why Mark was arrested and what he was arrested for until chapter 6. But at the very beginning now, John is arrested and that's... Why is that there? I think there's a couple of significant reasons. And the first one is, is that the baptism of John, of Jesus by John and the arrest of John, they're milestones. These are actually markers. And what they mark is that this is the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. That is how the early church marked the beginning of Jesus's early ministry. If you look through the other gospels, you will find out, you will see that John was arrested, Jesus was baptized. Now, the second thing that is significant is that the arrest of John and the beginning of Jesus' ministry are highlighted perhaps to show that the gospel is proclaimed and known in adversity and suffering. Back in verse 2 and verse 3 of chapter 1, we see, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. You see, John is the forerunner of Jesus. And in Mark's gospel presentation, he explains that John is not only a forerunner in Jesus' message, but also his fate. That includes suffering and death. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus' disciples, and if you think of all the apostles, how did their lives, what did their lives look like? Where did their lives end? John's life points to something so much greater than himself. In fact, he says, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. The start of this king's summons takes place 
after John's imprisonment. And then next we see the location of where this king starts. Jesus comes into Galilee, insignificant Galilee. It's a northern district in Palestine, a place where a a few, quite a few actually, of Jesus' disciples are selected. It's a place where women, we learn later in the gospel, come from to minister to Jesus. And yet, this weak Galilee, this insignificant Galilee, is the target of invaders from the north. Galilee is actually reputed for being severely nationalistic. It's a Jewish uh, settler's region. It has a lot of Gentiles surrounding the area. And what also is significant about Galilee is this is the place that Jesus returns to after his death and resurrection to recommission the disciples. Significant, uh, Galilee, this humble location, now has the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords arriving and making an incredible summons. So this King's start. It's not only after John's imprisonment, and it's an insignificant Galilee, it has, he comes with a powerful summons. And that summons is found in verse 15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now this is where I would want us to linger the most. Do you know, I find it so incredible I find it absolutely incredible that the first time we hear about Jesus and him speaking in Mark's gospel, we hear him proclaiming good news. Now, I don't know if you have the essential, I mean, the English Standard Version, but if you do, Jesus's words are in red. These are marking Jesus's first words. He is saying that the time is fulfilled. The, God, the kingdom of God is at, re, at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You know, other religions are different. Other, uh, other religions are different because they say, this is what you have to do in order to connect to God forever. This is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. This gospel says, this is what has been done for you. This is what has been done in history. This is how Jesus has lived and died to earn the way to God for you. Christianity is incredibly Joyful news, incredible joyful news. And now with the time being fulfilled, the king is heralding joyful news at just the right and just the perfect time. When we look through this Bible, when we turn to Genesis, in the first two chapters, we see that we were created to live in a world where all of our relationships were whole. All of our relationships were whole. And the reason they were whole was because because God was the king. And then when we get to chapter 3, we learn the next part of the story. 
that we think we are better than God, that we are wiser than God. I want you to imagine a big throne with Jesus sitting on the throne and here's us little peons going, no God, get off the throne. I can do it better. I would make a different decision. My way would be better. We become self-centered, self-focused. Things don't go our way. And we're saying to the king, king, get off because I can do it better. We begin to think that we can be kings. We can be kings of our own world and our own reign. I want you to listen to something very carefully and you're going to need to use a filter when I say this to you. Are you self-absorbed? Self-absorption is when we are concerned about ourselves. I, what I want. How am I being treated? How am I doing? How are people treating me? Am I proving myself? We have chosen to buy into the lie that this life is about us and it becomes all about me, myself, and I. Have you ever been talking with a friend and just realize when they're talking, it's I, I, and I, and I, and I, and you just kind of want to stop and go, but wait a minute. Who are you living for? Who is this about? You, people that are living self-absorbed lives, they live very sad existence. They become depleted. And let me tell you something. You were not created to think and live for yourself. We were created for something greater, to live for something more. We were created by a king who loves us to live for him. But we decided to go, don't like that idea. I want to be king. I want to call the shots. I want people to like me. Friends, I know because I was like that. And I can still be like that. I can be worried about everybody, myself more than everybody else. That is not how we were created to be. If you take this idea of self-absorption further, look at the consequences of that. We got relationship bust-ups. We got friendships busting up. We've got wars. Because people want what they want. They're setting things in place for themselves. They're not worried about justice for everybody else. They're worried about protecting themselves. Self-centeredness is a very significant issue that we must deal with in our hearts. We were not created to live for ourselves. And yet now here... In Mark 4, 15, we're reading these words. 
that the time is now fulfilled. A clock strikes in heavenly realms and boom, the time is now. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is exciting news. And brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Jesus and this doesn't affect your heart in some way, I would plead with you to ask yourselves, why are you not affected now by this incredible, joyful news? The time has come. I want you to picture a big clock. Go to London with me in your brains. Go climb up the inside of Big Ben in the tower where the clock is is ticking and you can see all the machinery. But imagine around the walls there are events and there are prophecies and there are people and there are things that need to be in place. Oh, scary. But before the Son of Man comes that we would have salvation... The time is now. The time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. You know, the kingdom of God, in understanding the kingdom of God, it's very big and broad and it requires a lot of reading. But did you know that the gospel of Mark, he never speaks of God as the king of or of his sovereign rule over Israel or over the world. That's not the picture that Mark is painting. Instead, Mark paints this picture of the kingdom of God entering. We enter into the kingdom of God, and we're entering in this new state where God's people are in God's place, enjoying God's rule and his blessing. You know, the Bible, is, it has, it, particularly in Mark, We can get a bit of an overview about this kingdom of God that is being ushered in, that is at hand. But I would want you to understand just a few things about the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God that is being ushered in for us, it is not a result of human efforts. It is not a result of anything that I have done or anybody else has done other than God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. There is none of our human efforts as a result of the kingdom of God. And the Bible does explain that the kingdom of God is a mystery. And you can read in Mark chapter 4 verses 11. He says, To you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. You know, it's in a place like that, it's in a verse like that, that I can be tempted to go, God, why would you do it like that? Why would you keep it, put it in secrets and, and in parables and people not understand? But I am questioning Almighty God who knows and sees what I don't know and what I don't see. He is God and if He chooses to usher in His kingdom in this way, then I say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't understand, but reveal to me why you would do that way. And one day, it might not be till glory that I will understand why He's chosen to, to bring about His kingdom in parables parables and stories. In chapter 4, verses 26 through 30, Jesus is telling parables and he's using the, um, describing the parable as if you're spreading seed around and some of it takes root and grows and some of it doesn't. And then he talks about the seed as a mustard seed and it grows bigger than all the other trees. 
The kingdom of God is coming and it's growing and it's going to be massive. And the kingdom of God is hidden and yet waits a future manifestation. It will include, my friends, power and glory. Friends, I want you to understand that Mark's starting point is that the beginning of the gospel is something that has been rooted in the Old Testament and is now being announced and it is being fulfilled. This means that if the time is fulfilled, it means that the kingdom of God is hand. This means that the gospel, the good news, it's that that fulfills the Old Testament promise of the gospel. I'm falling apart here. Friends, the time has come. This is the dawn of salvation, Paul speaks of it as. It's the fullness of time. Jesus has not come hustling or selling a kingdom. No, what this king has done is rather he has submitted himself patiently to a divine timing which has been prepared long before the world began and now he is proclaiming that it is here. This command, this proclamation, this summons demands a change of thinking, my friends. Why does it demand a change of thinking? Because the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of man. You see, the Hebrews and the children of God, they were waiting for a king who was going to come and set their kingdom up and establish them and they would be triumphant over their enemies. This isn't what's happening. This king that's coming is humble. He's serving other people. He's mingling with that type of person. That's not what a king is. This king's supposed to rule a mighty kingdom, massive army. It's not happening that way. The king's start, my friends. It's after John's arrest in insignificant Galilee with with a proclamation that requires a change in our thinking. Let's move on to look at the king's style. The king's style. Notice the way in which the King Jesus does things when you're reading these verses. It's so completely different than what you would expect from a king. This king has come to serve and not be served. This king has come proclaiming the saving rule of God. This king has come declaring the restoration of all creation. One day all things will be restored. What is broken will be repaired. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. Restoration of all creation. And when you slowly look at how he declares these things, you begin to notice a different style than what other kings would do. I was reading about how much preparation goes into um, pulling off royal engagements of the queen and and the royal family. I mean, just to host an event, um, you know, first of all, well, it wasn't the first off the list, but I mean, you've got the guest lists. And then you've got the menu. And then you've got the seating arrangements. And then you've got just the designers and the clothing and the jewelry and the hats and the handbags and, you know, the uniforms. What uniforms are they going to wear? The drivers, the servants, the entourage, the cooks, the chefs. They all need consulting and collaboration just to pull off an event. 
But I want you to look with me at verses 16 to 20, and I want you to notice this king's style. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, even though many hours, many days, many months, many things have happened and passed, everything is still in place. But notice, there's no red carpets rolled out. There's no new outfits or jewelry. There's not a menu that has been selected. Instead, Jesus does something very unusual. Jesus calls some some commoners. He calls some common dudes. He sees four guys somewhere along the lake. Now, what is interesting is that if you look over in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, he mentions actually that Peter and Andrew and perhaps other disciples had a prior acquaintance with Jesus before their call. Mark doesn't reference this. Is that a bad thing? Is Mark trying to disclose events or keep things hidden? No, he's not. But it does beg the question, why? Why didn't Mark include that into this account? Well, it's because the focus is not about who's being called. The focus is about the king calling people to himself. But here's what I want you to see about this king's style. I can't make more of it than what scripture already does, but I want you to notice who is looking for who. Jesus has come into our playground, a world that he created for us to live, that we've made a smozzle of. He comes into our world and he calls these men. Jesus entering our playground. King Jesus pursuing us. The brothers aren't pursuing Jesus. They're working. They're doing their work. When he sees them, he calls them. Now, Jesus, when he calls these people to himself, he is the unqualified subject of the call. Jesus is calling people to follow him. Now, this is really quite unique in Jewish traditions. Why? Well, because students students chose teachers. To be more first century, though, it was pupils who chose rabbis. Rabbis don't choose pupils. And if you saw a rabbi that you wanted to learn under, you would go and you would present yourself to that rabbi and say, I would like to learn from you. And then the rabbi would decide whether or not you were worthy. If you would bring his reputation down, I would have been told to go to the back of the line. But your rabbis were... you, You went to the rabbi and you asked the rabbi... If you could learn from him. But that's not what we see here. Jesus goes and calls these guys to himself. And because I want you to see what a savior we have. Mark is showing us that Jesus has a different style. This king calls you. He is the one that is doing a work in you. In Wayne's testimony this morning... Clearly something was at work within Wayne's heart. 
And then this man prays for him and it's, it's, Wayne's heart is, re, is prepared to respond to the king. The king has already been at work. Have you heard Jesus calling you? Have you heard the king working inside of you? Questioning, making you think about what is this existence about? What is the purpose of my life? And then, have you forgotten how the king called you is my next question. Have you forgotten the way that he was already at work and then in his providential care, he sends someone ahead to reveal to you who he is? You see, it's the king who calls. Jesus sees these two brothers who are professional fishermen. They're casting their net into the sea and Jesus calls to them. Now it's helpful to understand that fishing is a thriving industry in the Sea of Galilee. They reckon there's like some 16 ports that are very active with people bringing their fish in and getting it off to the markets. And it, rightly so, because at that time, in those days, um, fish is the staple food. But Jesus calls these brothers, who are no doubt very, very good at their business, but he calls them to himself and he asks this. He asks them to abandon their profession and to follow him. That's a massive call. Abandon your profession? He calls them to himself to train them for service. It's quite interesting that Jesus would call these guys to follow him because calling someone to follow someone, that's not quite common. Even in the Old Testament times, you wouldn't notice really, I don't think you can, there's one account that perhaps may link to this calling someone to follow someone else. But in those days, if someone's calling you to follow you, they're asking you to leave something that is your identity. Because back in those days, your family is your identity. And with your family, you would have, uh, it would be linked to some sort of a profession, whether it was a chef or a, a fisherman or a carpenter. You're, you're, you're being asked to leave your identity. It's a quite a big deal. So in actual fact, when Jesus is calling these guys, what he's requesting of them is he's wanting priority over their family. He wants to be the priority over their family. That's pretty drastic, isn't it? I mean, that's a huge ask. Think 2015, Sydney, Australia. And we, you know... uh, say to our kids, you know, you need to provide and protect and you need to buy a home and you need to do well in your education. And, you know, so if you have to go away to be educated, that's okay. Um, you know, you need to be able to, to do that. And so these days we're quite happy for families are quite split up and all over parts of the world. And, and so for us, that doesn't seem like a very big deal. But then for those times, that was massive. But I want to ask you something How would you, 2015, respond to someone who's telling you, I think Jesus is asking me to give up what I'm doing, my occupation. I've got a wife, and I've got kids, and I've got to step out in faith, and I've got to follow him. Because every time I close my eyes, and every time I read God's word, he's calling me to do something different than what I've trained for. He's asking for me to do that. That rocks people's world. People get nervous and anxious. But can I ask you something? Can you lead, leave everything? Could you leave everything so that you could know him? 
so that you could love Him? So that you could resemble Him? So that you could serve Him? I know it's drastic. I know, surely He doesn't want us to not provide for our wives and our children. Oh, surely He wouldn't want us to not to, to do that. He calls. And sometimes His call is drastic. But I want you to notice something. When He calls, He makes. When He calls them to come after Him, it's a call to discipleship. This is a relationship learning from a master to a teacher. Or a master or a teacher. So a student. And that's common among the rabbis of the first century. They would have got that. But what is unique about Mark's account is that he calls them and they respond. They leave their nets and just go. James and John leave their father and the servants and and they go and follow him. And Jesus says, hey, you guys fish for fish but I'm going to make you fishers of men. This king shows that he has authority in his calling, and his calling demands an immediate response. Mark wants to show readers that Jesus has authority over everything. He has authority over the spiritual realm. We'll read next week about how Jesus goes into the synagogue and a possessed man says, you are the son of God, and Jesus tells him to be silent, and the guy's silent. Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm. Later on, we read that Jesus has authority over illness. Peter's, I love this account, Peter's mother-in-law, she's not feeling well. Jesus goes over and touches her hand and she gets up and she begins to wait on him. I love that picture. Um, Jesus heals a woman who's bleeding. Jesus heals the leper. King Jesus has authority. He has authority over the winds and the waves. Remember, the disciples are in the boat, the storm's coming, and Jesus tells the wind to stop and the waves to be still. And they obey him. This king has incredible authority. And his authority is in calling men and women to himself and they respond. These four guys and many others have responded to his calling and he calls them to himself to make them fishers of men. King Jesus' style is so different. And here's what I want to finally highlight is the king's significance. At the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we read, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, this king's significance, my friends, demands your attention. It demands your attention not because of what it is asking of you. So you can get caught up with the disciples having to leave their family and their friends and their occupation. It's not because of what it is asking you, but because of what it is informing you of. You see, this king is significant because he is the source of the gospel. Friends, I mentioned to you at the beginning that I wanted to show you what a savior we have, and this is what grabbed my attention this week. If you look at verse 14, look at verse 14. See those last five words proclaiming the gospel of God? This has affected me immensely. Jesus, God's only son, is proclaiming 
the gospel, the good news of God. He is the source. God is the source of this gospel. God the Father provides His Son the news that brings joy to die so that we could be at peace with Him. This King's significance is incredible. Can you imagine being one of the disciples and all of a sudden your eyes are opened and you begin to understand, oh, oh, wait a minute, it's you. You're the good news. Not the message that you're pronouncing. The kingdom of God is here. Wait, that's you. You mean all I need is you? Jesus is come. He is fulfilling. He is the source. He is the good news. He is the gospel. He is the news that brings joy. It's Him. God's Son, Jesus, the one who summons, calls these men to Himself. He calls them and shows them what He's going to do for us. And He calls them to go and to tell. But He is the source. He is significant. He is also the fulfillment of the gospel. My dear brothers and sisters, do you sit here this morning thinking, wait, what? So, if He's fulfilled everything, what do I have to do? I mean, I thought this was about telling me what I can't smoke and I can't dance and I can't watch TV, I can't enjoy sex. I thought this was all about following rules and having to read my Bible every day and to, to, to pray every day and, and, and to not drink. I thought that's what I bring to the gospel so that the gospel's better. My friends, the gospel is all about what he has done. And for so long, I grew up in church and I was confused. I didn't realize that he had fulfilled it all. You see, you and I bring nothing to the gospel. He is the source. He is the fulfillment of the gospel, the joyful good news. The time has been fulfilled and he has done it. And as you begin to know the one who has fulfilled, the one who is the source, you begin to go, what do I do? How do you want to use my life? What do you want me to be? Where do you want me to go? So this doesn't point to you if I engage in this. If I'm living like this, this doesn't make you great. You're the fulfillment. You're the source. What do you want? What do I do? He is the fulfillment. And he's telling you what he's done for you. And finally, he is significant because he is the one who summons. Ah, just, sorry. That he would pursue Simon and Andrew and James and John, that it would be him who has done already so much. It's all how much we already mess things up. And then he would enter in and tell you what he's done, and say, I will help you. I am here for you. It's him who's calling. He didn't send some papyrus roll invitation to Peter and John and James and Andrew. He went and he called them. 
And you know what? He called these guys from their occupation. And he's referring to their occupation of the time. And this is what is so incredible about this king's summons, is that it's a universal summons to every single disciple. Don't get caught up in that they were fishers of men because Jesus talks about fishermen. He talks about farmers. He talks about builders. He talks about reapers. He talks about shepherds. He talks about stewards and he talks about servants. These are all found in the gospel. And each one of these things are our common Christian role. To our king and to one another. He summons. And in conclusion, as I've been praying for you and for me and just this preparation time, you know, the king comes in. His start is different. His style is different. He is so significant. And in his summons, my friends, I wouldn't want you to miss this. There is a response to the summons. And that is to repent That means to change what you're doing. Repent of what you say. Repent of wanting to be the king. Repent of wanting it to be your way because he has created, he has ordered, this is his and his alone. He has a plan and a purpose and he calls, he summons to follow him. What does that look like? It looks like all sorts of different things. But we're called to repent, to turn And to believe, believe he is the fulfillment. Believe what he has promised. Friends, I want to tell you something. Some of you here may have heard the king calling, and yet you haven't repented and believed. I need to tell you something. There have been many promises. And this kingdom of God that he has ushered in, he, it is fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament that was promised about. Abraham would have loved to see the day that King Jesus said the time is fulfilled. That's why he left his family. I'm sure there are many other prophets who longed for the day when the Messiah would come. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And if you are here now, there is another promise that has been made that has not come about yet. And that is that our king is coming again. And he will come in great splendor and awe and wonder. And what is so good about this king is that he has done it all for you. But we must respond. Have you heard heard him calling you and not responded? My friend, there's no magic potion. All you have to do is repent and say, God, I am sorry. I didn't understand that you're the king and I'm supposed to be living for you. I've never heard that before. Or I've heard it before and I'm struggling with it. But I repent of the way that I'm going and I surrender. I believe that you are the king of kings and you're the Lord of lords. Make me a fisher of men. Secondly, you may be here this morning and you may be thinking, I hear what you're talking about. And I've said yes to this, but I've said no to this. Because what he's asking me It's too much. I'm not going to give up my family. 
going to give up my bank account. I'm not going to give up my security. To see the children of Israel. The children of Israel were supposed to be a people who lived amongst other people and they worshipped God. He provided for them. He led them. Is that not our job today? To live for Him, knowing He will provide for us? I think it would be inappropriate for me this morning not to invite you to respond to the King's summons. And I'm sorry I get emotional about this, but Brendan says I live in a castle, and you know what? I do. But I'm a commoner, and I don't deserve to live in a castle. And I would never want to lead anybody astray. And I'm sorry for getting emotional. I told you I'm not supposed to do this, but this is so real. This is the truth. And we're inviting people to introduce them to Jesus because what we want to do is not tell them what they can do. We want to point to what he's done. Oh, and this king knows your very name. He knows the very numbers of hair on your head. He knows you. And he is worthy of having everything. What a savior. We owe everything to him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that you have softened our hearts to respond to the gospel. I'm glad that you don't give it us to us all at one time because I think we'd just be overwhelmed. But Lord, you give it to us in little increments and you lead us and you guide us and it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Father, there are people here, I believe, in a crowd like this, there would be people here who haven't responded they hear it in their heads they know what they ought to do but they actually haven't repented and said you're the king I will follow you and father there might be people here who go man that is a huge ask but lord you're the one who makes us to be fishers of men and you call us to go into all the world and, and, and to tell people about what you have done because of what we've experienced in our own personal relationship with you. And so, Heavenly Father, this morning, have your way with us. Friend, if you're here this morning and you have not uh, repented, you haven't turned and gone another way, this is as easy as it is, as you simply say, Father, Forgive me for going my own way. Help me to believe the gospel. Help me to trust you that whatever you ask me to give up, I will willingly do it because I know that you are good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.